Welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining us today. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Equity and Arts Fund. Neighbor Up Spotlight showcases citizens making positive contributions to their neighborhoods. My guest today is Mr. Dunn Pearson Jr., CEO of Believe Music Works, All Done Advertising Agency, All Done Products and Services, and founder of God Has a Blessing Foundation. Born and raised in Cleveland, he grew up in the Cedar, Quincy, and Lee Harvard neighborhoods, where he attended Washington Irving and Beehive Elementary Schools and Alexander Hamilton Junior High School, graduating from John F. Kennedy High School, home of the Mighty Eagles, where he was inducted into the inaugural JFK Hall of Fame. After graduating, he attended Kent State University on a scholarship to study music theory, composition, and orchestration. As a musical child prodigy and classically trained, his career has spanned five decades. A legendary giant in the music industry, he has produced, arranged, and written music for some of the biggest names in show business. The OJs, Gerald Levert, Stevie Wonder, Melba Moore, Luther, Teddy, D'Angelo, and Mary J. Blige, just to name a few. His creative portfolio is massive. Pianist, composer, arranger, orchestral arranger, author, producer, recording artist, filmmaker, director, community advocate, philanthropist, entrepreneur. One of the top five African-American composers to win the Decathlon of Music Award for success in all genres of entertainment. Movies, television, Broadway, music, commercials, and he is a recipient of Celebrity Entertainment Awards for some historical commercial firsts. A dedicated community servant whose warm, engaging personality and welcoming smile continues to share his time and talents to help others. He is passionate about supporting organizations that preserve African-American history. Mr. Pearson resides with his family in the historic town of Hamden, Connecticut, where he is the music minister and pianist at Hamden Plains United Methodist Church and a member of the Neighbor Up Network. Welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight, Dunn. Thank you for visiting. I am so excited about speaking to you today. Well, I'm certainly honored to be a part of this wonderful, wonderful podcast. It just warms <laughs> my heart to be a part of it. <laughs> yes, it's fair. I've, I've, I've been looking forward to it. So we have a lot to cover, so let's get started. So my first question is, who and what inspired you to become a musical artist? Well, the uh, the inspiration, I'll say it that way, was very um, touching because it was my neighbors um, ah. at, uh, next door to my grandmother's home and the entire family played the piano. And the interesting thing or great thing about it was that the siblings uh, that played, they were all of different ages. Okay. That's first of all, it's obvious, but I'm saying they were also spread out enough where there were different genres. So like, I would say one of them played a lot of jazz. One played a little more current of the R&B or whatever was on the radio. And then the, um, the, the sister, uh, she was the younger one. She played classical. Okay. And um, so I would get a chance to hear all of this music. Yeah. And and I took a liking to it, you know. And and so I finally eventually asked my, uh, my grandmother and my mom, hey, I want to play like them next door. Yeah. And I was only 
you know, five, six or seven years old, you know, somewhere in that area. But they um, they said, OK, and um, they allowed me to go to take piano lessons. And that's okay. how I got started, to, okay. to be honest. That was the inspiration right next door. So that leads into my next question. So since you were about five years old when you began to play an instrument. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was somewhere between five and six or seven, you know, so a little cloudy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you so, know. so listen, was, tell us about your lovely mother, Jewel Struther, your grandmother, Miss Alverna Mayfield, and Mrs. McManning, and the lessons that they taught you. I'll start, yeah, but I'm going to start with my grandmother first. I'll go, I'll go in that order. Yeah. Um, I'll say my, my grandmother um, was... Um, well, wonderful is too small of a word, but I'll say the inspiration of life. Wow. Um, carried the hope of us doing something better, a little more ach- achievement. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me just say something first about it. Um, I come from a long history of only children. Okay. So it, it, brought a, it brought a connection there. So my grandmother's only child, my mother's an only child, I'm an only child, and my daughter's an only child. So that spirit, that little connection of having that closeness of being only children that re- that would relate to it, she could relate to me right off of the bat, and yeah. we had that connection. It was young for me, so so when I said I wanted to play the piano, they had an instant connection with all of them. Mm-hmm. So my mom took the lead, I'll say, from my grandmother. In that, in that, in that scenario and said, are you sure? <laughs> you know, you know, and, um, because, you know, obviously there was expenses involved in all right. of that, you know? Yeah. So, um, I'll say, so my grandmother, uh, created the space for me to have that vehicle to listen to the neighbors. My mom, of course, stepped in and took control of her son's destiny yeah. and said, okay. And so she handled all of the, the technical side of it or the support system. Okay. No, was making sure that I got to the piano lessons and things of that nature, you know, and you, you know, as, as people, many times we overlook that, but those are the parts of it that mean the most to me. Right. Okay. Um, um, as you know, Carol, I mean, you and you and my mom, you, you guys work together and yeah. things of that. My mom. Okay. So I'm saying, I'll say it this way. When my mom passed, that connection of never being me, it was always we. Yes. Hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Because I, I because when when my mom passed on, it drew me to gravitate to the small things. That's what I'm saying. So being an only child, it brought that back to full circle. So I was right in the midst of that, of understanding what all of that meant. So it was the little things. It was the support. It was taking me to the lessons. It was encouraging me. It was all of that. Miss McManning. Miss McManning took a liking to me um, just on the pure aspirations of a young kid that just wanted to be something, just wanted to play. I had a, I had a wonder, I would sit and I was in awe of her talents of being able to play yeah you know i wish i could play an instrument well i played the flute but not very long and not very good in woodbury's band right oh listen you know and (laughs) miss mcmahon took me to her church so i got a chance to see her in action and actually see the execution so i say that miss mcmahon put the soul into it oh yes because with the reading the notes on the page of the classical part it's very i would say technical 
but it was that extra soul part of it that made the difference. And throughout my career, the, the main thing that I'll say about my own plane of music that separates me from others because everybody has their own style of playing. Yeah. But I have a certain inner soul about it. Yes. That it stays with me right now. And you can hear that in my own plane. It took me a long time to understand that, Carol. It didn't yeah. just happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and, and, and we and we could roll the tape back and we, this is 30 years ago. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to articulate. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what yeah. that is. But yeah. now I'm mostly that, that's that's basically it. They, they they certainly were my my they were my three you know supportive on the musical trail. Come on, Dunn, you can do it. <laughs> let, me this, let, me, let me have this. Let me have this funny little part about it. So you know, sooner or later it came time for me to get a piano. Yeah, you know, I need my own piano. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that you know, of course, that changed the whole dynamic of the whole thing because of course, you know, piano's not cheap. Right. You know? So. Right. So my mother said, well, you know, this can't be one of those things where, you know, you just saying, oh, I want to do this today. And then next week you come in talking about you want to do something different. Right. You know? <laughs> She's like, so if you're going to make this commitment, um, you got to really stay with the piano. In right. other words, if we put this investment in it now, we're more than just talking about a kid trying to find his way. Now <laughs> You're talking about real investment of, of cash money. Yeah. And um, yeah. and so I took that to heart. I will never, ever forget that sacrifice that they made for yeah. me. It means everything in the world to do that. And that just shows what parents will do for a love of a child. Absolutely. So when you, when you ask me about my mom yeah. and my grandma and Miss McManning, I equate that to say that they went and they expressed and not only expressed their love, their actions took that and said to me, done, we're going to put this love into you. We're going to put this love behind you. Right. And we're going to see what God has to do with that love and and pray that I was able to take that 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 talent, that gift, and actually do something with it. Oh, that oh, sticks yeah. with my heart to this day. Yeah. Well, you, you've made them proud because you've done so much with it. <laughs> I tried to. <laughs> you've done so much with it. Now, as a teen, you were playing and arranging music for the one of the most popular high school bands in Cleveland, John F. Kennedy, as well as working with other musical groups, the Shades of Soul, the Ponderosa Twins, Ninth Street Exit. What lessons did you learn from balancing all those responsibilities really at a really young age? I had no idea. (laughs) You know, um, looking back on it, I had no idea what was going on, but I can tell you in hindsight yeah. uh, in those connections. So let's start with the Shades of Soul and all of that. Okay, well, the first part of that was just, you know, <laughs> we just trying to have some fun, you right. know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, myself, uh, Benny Slocum, which you, which you know very well, and Kenny Redden and, and Ernie Carey, you know, we just had like a little fun group, you know, like any other thing. We just right. trying to find our way of playing some instruments. And um, fortunately, uh, we were blessed to get the opportunity to play with the Ponderosa Twins. And that was led by a gentleman named Bobby Massey, who's yes. one of the original OJs. And so we got, I got we got connected with him, bottom line. And he came and he taught us how to to play for real as a real musician, as a working musician, because we literally went on tour. You know, the, uh, um, I wasn't really uh, conceptually understanding the the hit meaning of a hit record, right? But 
but we had a hit record, right. you know, <laughs> it sold a, right. a million copies, you know, right. it, was, it was literally hit. And so, so careful. You know? <laughs> so on the weekends, we would get the opportunity to go play these all over the country, you know, going mm-hmm. city to city, playing and this, that, and the other. And then on Monday, I'd come back to, to Kennedy and I'd be a regular kid again. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to tell all the friends, hey, listen, you know, we were just so on right. like, yeah, duh. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, you know, the girls, they were trying to tear my clothes off and all. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Right. I I had no no idea, but in the in that same teaching that, that you're that we're talking about, what it taught me was how that it was a business. Of to be professional. Yes. It told me that it's just more than just plain, you know, because, you know, let's keep it real now, too. You know, you, know, you join it, you know, you learn to play your instrument because you have an affinity or a love for the instrument. Right. But you join the band to get the girls, baby. <laughs> let's, right. let's talk about what's really important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's really important. Yeah. Too you funny. Know. Oh, you know, so in the midst of all of that, you know, you're trying to impress the girls, baby. So um, I learned how to use some of the techniques to make that happen, you know. Um, and so <laughs> that that was the basic influence to it. And it showed us the difference in how to be a professional versus just, you know, a, a band. Yeah. I know. And which leads me to my next question. What was it like to be in your, because in your book, it's so the way your book is just so it's so funny. But what was it like to be in your first JFK High School uh, talent show? Because when I talk to people, because the school system has changed so much here, and there are not they don't do school talent shows anymore. And so Kennedy had like one of the biggest. What was it like when you did your first JFK talent show? Because I remember going, they were huge. So at that time, Sly Stone of Sly and the Family Stone was my idol. Okay. And the music was going really, really good at the time. Okay, so Sly had a had an album. I don't know what the name of it was, but he had these white fur boots mm-hmm. on the cover. My mother drove me around Cleveland. We went to every <laughs> location because I'm just trying to find those fur boots. <laughs> sure. We actually found a pair wow. in a ski shop, in a, in a ski Ski resort. Okay. Because I guess that's what people wear. You know, they wear the boots up at, you know. First of all, I had no idea what skiing was or none (laughs) of that. But but we actually found it. Okay. So I dressed up totally like Sly. Oh, wow. So with the the professionalism that I just earlier articulated to you with the Ponderosa Twins and all that, I knew a little bit about show business. Yeah. So I had Benny and the, them to, to kick off the music before I came on. Mm-hmm. They're like playing the music. Right. And Carol, all I had to do, I just simply walked on stage to the microphone and I just opened my arms open wide. Uh-huh. And, and for those of you that know anything about ministry or anything of that nature, when you open your arms up wide from a religious standpoint, that means open. I'm open to God. Yeah. Okay. So, but of course I didn't know that back then. Right. But when I opened my arms up, because I can see it like it was yesterday at, at the, the people in the high school, they went crazy. Yeah. Oh, wow. At that point, it didn't really, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to play. I could have just simply walked back off the stage. and So I, I told the audience, I said, so I can tell you this. 
You may not know who I am. You may not have anything. But to my high school people, friends, peers, whatever you want to call them, I am a huge star. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge star. Because from that moment on to this very day, I'm a legend. In my high school. Yes, yes, you are. Because of that moment. Yes, yeah, you really. are. Yes. Because, I mean, at John F. Kennedy had, I remember going to the first John F. Kennedy high, uh, talent show. It was two days. It was, it was a two-day two talent show. The gym was packed. It, it was, was huge. It was, yeah, it was and huge. It, and, it's, and it's really a shame that they do not have talent shows like that here in Cleveland. It was either John F. Kennedy or Miss, uh, what was the lady at East Tech? Miss, oh, man. Miss 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 Ross, Miss Ross, Miss Ross. That's right, Miss Ross. And those talent shows were just huge. Huge. Oh, I mean, the, the, Carol, the, the talent shows was it was like everything. Yes, it was I mean, everything for, for us. For for us, I mean, I went down and I practiced my um, artistry and and what I was going to do because I had a whole lot of theatrics. <laughs> I I played I played with my hand behind my back. I played with my nose, you know. People, people thought I was eating the organ up there. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was a whole lot of, you know, but we prepared for it, yes. you know. And um, and I'll I'll share I'll share this because you know um, you're gonna get to my book in a minute, but you know there there comes a uh, uh, some also uh, nervousness about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I was no different. And there was there was a couple guys that play one guy in particular that he played a lot of jazz music and he was all over the piano, you know, he, you know, doing all this. I was like, oh, I said to myself, I may not be able to outplay him. But I'm going to certainly outperform him. There you go. <laughs> and so so unfortunately for him, you know, that little battle of the bands, because let's let's make no mistake about it. The talent shows are a talent show. It is a competition. And it was a very serious competition among every single one of us, you know. And and that was that was at the forefront of it, and that was at the ending of it, you know, and we all wanted to do our best and everybody went all out. So um me and uh, the Shades of Soul at Ninth Street Exit, we were no different. You know, we we were gonna prepare and we tried to do the best we could. And so performing was was uh was an extra added thing. So and I make a long story short. Yeah, the talent shows it would teach everybody because at the end of the day, of course, we were all making a connection together. Right. And we didn't see it that way, but as you go along in history, we all have a connection because it took it took everybody for me to be that outstanding in my own eyes. And without them, there's no me. And the same and the same goes with each other. So no matter what, whether they're talking about a Dunn Pearson or whoever else, or my group, another group in that moment, we're all connected to that. And that's what really is the most important thing that you take out of it as you go along and in, in further in life.
love that. Yeah, oh, thank you. I love, yeah. I love so that. Do I. You know, and this sounded really good too. I was like, wow. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it sounds wow. really, really good. Well, yeah, they they put me in the studio. I was like, you know, yeah, I, but my career has been been truly blessed because yeah, they, they put me in the studio <laughs> and I brought the band in and we, you know, we just had opportunities. I'll just say it. Oh yeah, I, I did my little homework <laughs> behind it. You were the arranger. This is what I loved the name of the label, the Solid Foundation Records, a division of Harmony on Euclid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they were. Uh, they were, It was headed by a gentleman named Lyman Moffat. And um, back in the day, he was um, instrumental in bringing a lot of acts together. You know, he was trying to make a, a huge record label for, for Cleveland. Yeah. And, and we went on the road and all of that to promote these records and, you know, go around. I, I learned... Let me. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go back to high school again just to make the connection between all three. So what was also happening beyond the talent shows? Of course, we had the marching band. Yes, marching band, band was, was awesome. equally. Yeah, then marching band, of course, was equally as as um you know competitive as the talent shows. Right. It it, it had that whole thing as well. All right. So I became um, president of the marching band around that time. And you were what, 16? I was 16, yeah. I was 16. So we're in that area, 15 or 16. So I'm president of a marching band. And um, so um, there was no music written for the songs that, you know, that, that we kids wanted to play. You know, they, right. you know, the written music was, you know, classical and right. you know, all that other stuff. But, John you know, Philip Sousa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. But, you know, we wanted, to play, we wanted to play what we call the hip music, right. you know, whatever it was right. hip. So, so Slide the Family Stone. Right. Hot for the summertime. Right. Yeah. You, you, you know what I'm saying? So, anyway, so. I only thing I didn't knew what to do. I would literally write the notes on the blackboard, mm-hmm. right? So I would go to the clarinets. I would say, okay, you play this G note. And I would, you know, just literally write G and A and, you know, and then hum them the, the you know, where it went. Of course, everybody would know where it went because they knew the song. But, you know what I'm saying? But I'm giving them the notes to do that. Right. And I would go to the trombone section. I would say, you play these notes. You know, I would do it right. like that. And little did I realize that I was actually what you just uh, said. I was actually arranging the song. Of course, I didn't know that. I'm just trying to get the tune, you know. (laughs) Right, right. You know, we we want to be Glenville's band. That's all I do. Right, right. (laughs) We're trying to find the hippest tune. Let's let's do that one. Right. So little did I know that all of this blackboard writing, I was actually uh, arranging. And our music... uh, uh, director at, at Kennedy at the time, his name, his name was Mr. Harden. And so uh, I cheated a little bit. I'll say it this way. I cheated a little bit because Mr. Harden and the school <laughs> system only knew Dunn, my, me, as a trombone player. Ah. I never told them that I played the piano. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they just knew me as a trombone player. So one day um I got to school early and I was in the in the in the music room and I'm playing the piano and I turned and Mr. Harden had been standing in the doorway. He never said a word. He was just listening to me play. So he comes in, Carol, and he says to me, he said, I knew there was something about you. <laughs> he, said, he said, You 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 play that piano. 
you are really a musician, you know? (laughs) In essence, I sort of cheated, if you will. Not cheated, but I just didn't lead lead on because I had an advantage over the trombone section. I'm a freshman. So (laughs) so imagine a freshman and qualifications of the competition to move for what chair you were sitting in, you know, first chair, second chair, you know, all of that. Yes. I was always in the last chair, so I understand. Okay, right. So (laughs) I played the flute for a minute. Okay, I get you. Right. So they put me in the fourth chair, the fifth chair, you know, whatever the whatever the low like you said, the low number. To have this competition um, amongst everybody to move up. And that was based on your reading ability and could you play? So the whole band witnesses all of this. Everybody in the whole band is, is sitting in the in the audience in the room, right? So I'm in the fifth chair. So in the competition, I move to the fourth, right in front of everybody. Then I move to the third. Oh my goodness. Move to the second. Uh-oh. All of this thing. And I literally beat the guy in the first place as well. Oh boy. But Mr. Harden wouldn't give me the first chair because he didn't think that that was fair. Was, the guy in the first chair was a senior. Yeah. So he kept me in the second chair. So I'm saying it is that's the only reason why I was able to do all of that because I've been playing music, studying music. So of course right. I could read all of the music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I sort of, I sort of left that little tidbit left out. out. Right. Left that all out. Right. Okay. So, but I'm getting back on point. So when Mr. Harden now discovers that I actually could play and he actually understood that. So then he took the opportunity at that time to say, okay, done. All right. So as opposed to me writing the literal note G or A or telling the people what to play, he put the musical staff on yeah. the blackboard. He said, done. Okay. Just teach the people the real notes. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's excellent. In other words, quit the facade like you don't <laughs> right. know. You, you, you don't know what you know, you're doing. You, you know darn well <laughs> <laughs> what you are doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you know it's good that we're talking because this is Cleveland. We're talking yeah. about the neighborhood, so I know that the listeners, any of them that go back with us, they'll they'll certainly identify yeah. with us. And I got a lot of them that, that do that. So yeah. I'm just glad you allowed me the opportunity to, to make a little clarification. You know how long that's been sitting in my heart? And I told them. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you shared that story. It's a great story. That is a great story. Now, who was Dr. Watson and how did he impact your college career? Because I think that's a great story. Um, I get out of college. I mean, excuse me, I get out of high school and I go to Kent State University. Okay. So I guess it was a blessing the way they said, but you know, they, um, the school as a freshman, they generated your schedule. Okay. So, you know, you didn't get a choice. I didn't get a choice to say, I want to start class at, you know, whatever time. Blah, blah, blah. So they gave me the earliest class. I don't think it was like seven fifteen, or, you know, whatever it was, you know, way too early. I was saying that way. First class of the day. And it was music theory. And I had it five days a week. So it forced me to get up every single morning way earlier than I wanted to any of that. Um, And I had to go to this music theory class. Well, two things that happened there. The first thing I'll make it so that people understand, it made me, since I was already up, it made me go to all my other classes. (laughs) I was already up, you know, so that that allowed me to um, make the honor roll just simply because I was up. But let me go back to the class. 
And music theory, by the time I got there, all it really did for me, it gave me affirmation. Mm-hmm. That everything that I had been doing with Ninth Street Exit to the Ponderosa Twins to this whole marching band, all this stuff that I told you, it gave me affirmation that what I was doing was technically correct. Okay. And so uh, Mr. Watson, Doc Watson was his name. Doc Watson took a liking to me because he was my advisor as right. well. And he he gave me that extra confidence to say, yeah, everything you've been doing, I'm just now reiterating it to you. You actually already know this. The only difference is, is that you just haven't gained the confidence to understand that what you already know is already real. So he just he gave me affirmation to say, if you continue to do this, then you can turn what you were doing to that marching band to the quote unquote big leagues. You can actually start hiring the orchestra and you can start hiring, you can start hiring these guys here in, in your own, in this own college band and start using them as your, as your musicians. So he gave me the confidence and the knowledge to bridge my way from being a, a, a chalkboard writer to a literal arranger that enabled me to then produce that record that well, I see the exit or be a part of solid foundation. Solid Foundation, go, I'll go back to it, Mr. Bobby Massey again. He told, he, Bobby Massey told me, he says, Dud, we don't have a lot of arrangers here in Cleveland, so you should go to college and learn how to do that because then you could fill a void. In other words, you know, you could fill a job. And I, I've always kept that to heart. He told me that, and I so I followed his I followed his advice. So I went to, to Kent State. And Dr. Watson um, did that. I must say this. I must say this about Dr. Watson. Dr. Watson also showed me how to be independent because um, when I got home one time, uh, summer break, and uh, my mom was married to um, my my stepfather. And, um, And he had me sit down. He's like, you know what? We can't afford to send you to college. You know, you're going to have to come back home and go to a, you know, whatever, you know. And um, and so I went, I drove in the summertime and Dr. Watson met me at Kent State. And Dr. Watson looked at me and he says, you know what? He said, uh, I'm going to take you around to some buildings today and I'm going to satisfy that problem. And that's exactly what he did. Carol. After that afternoon, I had more than enough money to go to college. I was one of the only people on campus that when it came time to pay to go, to go to college, I was the only one that was happy because I had a <laughs> lot of money left over. It was like I had a payday because I, I had scholarships and grants and, wow. you know, everything. And he he showed me how to take care of myself. And, uh, and, and, and I will never, ever forget that. And I'm going to say it and say it loud in this scenario. And I I know it may or may not mean anything, but it means something to me. He was a white man. Yeah. And he stepped up. He saw that in me and he turned it on for me. Yes. He saw that. He saw that. He saw your brilliance. He saw saw your talent. He saw my talent. And he was going to help you get, make sure you got to where you needed to be. And you didn't have to worry about money that you could just go on and study. Absolutely. And do what you needed to do academically. 
Absolutely. He yeah. 1000% did that for me. And I wouldn't, I will always be in, uh, in gracious and indebted to him well, uh, for that. But big that, ups to Dr. Watson. That's big great. Dr. Watson. Big that ups is to Dr. Watson. Watson. Absolutely great. And, and, but you know, he sort of got it back out of me because he was also president. He was also the leader of the, um, the lab band, which is like a jazz band. And of course he, he may, he may be playing that jazz. Band. <laughs> you know, Carol, yeah. and it, and it was pretty interesting too, because you got to understand in my own world, of course I had this, I had a little celebrity. First of all, I'm a celebrity at my high school. Right, you know, so big time. <laughs> I, I got this bravado thing going. And of course I had toured the country with the, with the Ponderosa twins and all of that. It was my first time being exposed to an all white um, organization. The band, the jazz band was completely white and I was the only black in there. And it's at Kent State University at the time. University, right. Yeah, yeah. At that time. And, and that in itself was different. Yeah. And what year was that? Yeah, that was in, um, so that was in 72. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was the, I was the only one and it, it, you know, <laughs> I felt some kind of way about it. Yeah. Um, but I was determined to be a part of it. They made me feel welcome. I welcomed them, but we were all learning each other. Yes. You know? So they were learning something about me. I was certainly learning something about all of them. And we made a we made a connection. So I'll conclude the solid foundation thing. So so all the musicians that I recorded with all of those were these white gentlemen that played in this lab band wow. and they got a kick out of it Wow! because of course, they're not being exposed to playing black music. Right. So while I'm on this project, I know we may get to it later, but I've got to just tell you, I'm going to fast forward. I mean, get the audience a little chance. I'm going to fast forward to what's happening today. All right. So I'm playing at the Orlando urban film festival. And we'll talk about that in a little while about yeah. my, my yeah. thing. I want to say this. I'm standing in front of the Dr. Phillips uh, performing arts center in Orlando. And um, they have a marquee out front. Of course they have marquee of the coming events. And um, as I'm standing there and I'm, you know, you know, caught in the moment that I'm actually going to grace the stage in this prestigious building. Cause it reminds me of severance hall. It's on that same um, statue of, of, of level. And uh, and my proudest moment coming out of Kent state, was that I actually I were able to use the violin players from the Cleveland Orchestra okay. on any of these recordings that I did. So I was actually hiring all these people. I started to say, you, you talk about what was actually going on. I didn't realize that I was a paymaster and all right. of that. I was paying the people. But I realized now, of course, I was learning how to run a business. Of right. it. You know, I was like, okay, but let's get back to the, the moment. So I'm standing in front of Orlando and I'm looking at the marquee and you know how they have those things that sort of flip or rotate, you know. And the next thing I see is that the Cleveland Orchestra is coming to this very arena, I mean, a performing arts center uh, uh, sometime coming up in in January. And I got to tell you, um, tears started rolling down my eyes because I'm thinking to myself, I've come full circle. Yes. Imagine that this very orchestra that started kick my career off that I literally used to hire these members of this Cleveland orchestra and look how far they have come. Right. You know what I'm saying? Full circle. Full circle. I'm now standing on the same stage that the Cleveland orchestra will also stand on that very stage. 
yeah. how it just blew me away. I'm yeah. standing down there and I'm, I'm almost like a little kid. You know, I got wiping my eyes. And, but I'm trying to get it together because that moment stuck out like a sore thumb. So, that, so now, of course, Mr. Bobby Massey, tell us about him and how did he completely change your life? I mean, he was my inspiration. He was also a producer, a uh, producer of many of the uh, the projects that I was doing at the time. So in essence, he was hiring me, he took me under his wings. Um, he taught me everything that I needed to know about how to produce a record, how to, you know, what to do, what to listen for. He brought me in as his, as his top arranger. And um, and so we just worked together. Um, and then, of course, he was certainly instrumental in obviously making the connection for me to join the OJs. I mean, yeah. that's and, and I'm and I'm so I'm so happy that um, Bobby Massey, of course, um, you know, he he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Damn, and right. The OJ, he deserves it. So and um, and he's actually, be, you know, been taking active part in Cleveland, Ohio, in the actual, you know, building downtown and being part of the uh, affairs and things like that. So I'm, I'm, I couldn't be proud of him and, th- and more thankful to him uh, for my entire career. So how long did you travel with the OJs, tour with them, and, and what, what memory can you share? Well, the, I joined the OJs, I think, in 75. And, I, you know, well, my, I've actually worked with them because I, I came off the road, I think, in, in maybe 80 or 79, somewhere in that area. So maybe five years or so on literally on the road with them. And that was doing all of their, the biggest time in their career. I was grace blessed enough to be a part of that, um, doing all of the big hits. And then, you know, of course, as I said, again, I'm an arranger and producer. So I produced and wrote records with them. You know, so my relationship has continued on with them. Yes. Even today, I just recorded, recently recorded a couple of years ago an, an album on, Walter Williams of the OJs is one of the and so forth and so on. So my um, history with them has been phenomenal Um, and specific about the, the, the music or playing with the OJs. I'll say it this way. Number one, um, the, the singers of the OJs are, are two of the greatest vocals I've ever worked with in my life. I said that hands down, Eddie Levert and Williams are just too golden. It it just, um, it moved my standards of thinking and, 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 and using people that could sing and, you know, what I believe in how you become a showman and all of those things, Eddie LaVert and Walter Williams, um, William Powell and Sammy Strain and all of them that, that took the, the third place. They were all just super. It was a wonderful experience. I tell everybody this, this way it's like being a basketball player, you know, you'd be in a small network of people. So I say this way, um, Dunn Pearson, um, I'm in a small group of people that can say that I've actually played Madison Square Garden uh, to a sold out crowd. Wow. <laughs> More than once. <Whoa>. Okay. <laughs> you know, so I think that that basically says it all um, in terms of in terms of the things. And so to me, um, these markers of uh, achievement, if you will, I was able to achieve that with them. Yeah. So my transition coming from the OJs going into some of the other things that you read on my credit, the decathlon moving and other things, it was a natural uh, progression for me because that's how I took it. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, well, I conquered that. Now I want to conquer something else. And right. I, you know, I would throw this at, and then 
I was the youngest one in the entire OJ's organization. So mm-hmm. I was like the young boy, the, the college boy, is what he used to call me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so with that connotation, I learned a lot about how you handle big business, how you handle show business. The main <laughs> thing that I that I talk about in terms of the moments, mm-hmm. the moments with the OJ's uh, on the stage is that it showed me from being with Benny and them back in the Ninth Street Exit, you know, days, yeah, you know, we had a lot of freedom, right? you know, move from side to side to stage and all of that. But when it came to the big show, I'll go back to Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. everything became so choreographed, so on point. In other words, you had literally, they had tape on the floors. Mm-hmm. So you had to make your marks, you know, you had to make the marks and that's only because of the lighting. So if you had a sense of creativity, which you wanted to just, you know, go over and do something different, right. you could do that because it would be unfair to the person that paid that money sitting way up in the nosebleed section. They can't see it. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, so you had to do everything was too confined. So it got to be very confined to me. That's what, that's the thing I took away from it is that when you go to big business, yeah. then everything becomes more consolidated and you lose that creative freedom. Yeah. All right. So, so the bigger moments for me, when people ask me what's my big moments with the OJs, well, the big moments was going back to the hotel and where we would jam with other people. Oh wow! On the thing, so so the small people that just happened to be in the hotel bar, restaurant, or whatever, they got a treat, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they got a chance to see us. Like you know, like I one one time, I mean, we jammed with the Rolling Stones, oh, you know, what I'm saying? man. So those type of those type of moments are the moments that really connect with me musically yeah. because it just took it to, you know, those, those are rare moments there. <laughs> you know, you, you can't make those up and we were all totally free. Yeah. So I'm going to conclude because I know you want to move on, but I'll make the, go back to the connection <laughs> okay. of the, of the talent show. Yeah. This would, this in essence would still be a bigger talent show because of course everybody's trying to show how good a musician they are playing and whatnot. However, but we're all in the same family because everybody's doing big success and doing big business. So yeah. we're just opening ourselves up to have fun. Yeah. But still, again, make no mistake about it. It's still another talent show. Right, you know? right. He's just doing it in a small oh. little hotel. Right. <laughs> me and you, hello, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but he's having a talent show, Carol. Right. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's yeah. all right, I'm enjoying it. It's not a problem. Now, what? <laughs> What is it that you really enjoy about your musical career? And do you have a favorite genre that you like to work in? I don't necessarily have a particular one that I like, but I'll say that the um, film business, of course. Yeah. Um, when you when you go to the true definition of entertainment, the entertainment business <clears throat> is the movie business. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Everything else is a byproduct of it. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting that the study that I'm about to do um, in Orlando uh, film festival is the same thing. I'm doing the history of the black urban films. So the movie business is the big business. So back in the day, back in the early parts of the century, they they said, oh, well, we need some music, you know, to sort of go behind the acting. So they would hire piano players to simply play in the theaters, you know, and they would just play the music while the, while, you know, while the film was playing. Right. And somebody says, well, you know, you know, those guys that are playing the music, you know, so certain theaters 
to draw more people, started adding more musicians, live musicians, and not only the piano players, they started bringing the little bands in, you know, all that, you know, to just play behind the movies. Well, then somebody said, well, you know what? Why don't we start a record company or something like that where we can record that music that they do and then we can sell that? So it became a byproduct of the film business that we didn't have the record business. Mm -hmm. See? Yeah. So everything spawns from that. Yeah. So... Uh, I would say that I would I do more excelling at the movie business because that just represents for the, for me mm -hmm. the top of the industry. Yeah. The, make no mistake about it. Yeah. This is a business. That's why they call it the business of entertainment. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and the biggest business of it, of course, is the movie business. Yeah. In in doing my research, I saw that you worked with Kevin. Um, Oh, I just had Kevin's last name. Oh, the, uh, the director, filmmaker here in Cleveland. <laughs> Kevin Taylor. Right, Kevin Taylor. Yeah, anyway, yeah, because I, I met him um, last year. I participated last September or sometime. I participated in a three-day, really intense uh, virtual reality uh, yeah. situation. And, met a th and I met Kevin. And then when I was doing my research, I said, oh, okay, Kevin and Don have worked together. Kevin directed a film that is uh, sort of a... Uh, my life story, if you will. Okay. It's not based on my life story, but it was more about the, the abuse. What was the name of, of the film? Um, it's called Unhinged. Is okay. The name of the okay. Film. Yeah, I did see that in your credits. Yes. The name of the film is, uh, but Kevin, yeah, Kevin, he directed that film, and he, he did such a wonderful job. He's a, <laughs> yeah, I love his filmmaking. He's an, and he's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. We just we just needed some more money in it, you know. <laughs> But movies are there because it gives me a chance to to do everything uh, musically wise. You yeah. got to put it to the music. I won't go into, well, I'll go to uh, just slightly a bit. What it, mean, what it means is that, um, uh, Carol, just to say, for instance, that we're um, filming a movie right now. We're on Zoom right now. Right. Okay. Yeah. But but just say just say for instance that you decide to touch the microphone or I wave my hand or whatever that is. I can pinpoint that exact moment in the score mm -hmm. and then I can have music that will actually accent it. So when you say something or you hit the microphone or whatever, I can have some music notes that play on and all of that. Yeah. So, it, so to me, I'm, you know, I'm big in math um, that there's mathematics in it. And so I used to have a book. I bought a book. It's a huge big, like a big Bible book, but it's very large and it has all of the calculations in it. Wow. If I were to get up and go go out the door, slam the door, whatever, I could make the music actually hit on that exact moment. So there's a lot of music musicality challenges uh, that I like in the film business, just for those very uh, reasons that I just said. Wow. Wow. Well, of course, you know, you have this handle that you've had for years. So how did you get the name The Black Beethoven? All right, the Black Beethoven was born. I also wow, you you know you're pretty good as a as a host because you know what we're moving right linear. I was just talking about <laughs> movies. I'll apropos. Okay, so as time goes on, I'm I'm on the big time now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have a friend who works at Warner Brothers Pictures. Okay, and he's a big wig. So I didn't tell him, you know what? I want to start scoring some of them big movies. You know, I want to do them big movies like Jaws and Star Wars. And, <laughs> you, know, you, know, <laughs> you know, you know, which I have a composer named John Williams. He's like one yes. of the top. He is, yeah, yeah, definitely. 
I'm one of the top. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like one of the top. Okay. So I want to do all of that. So he says, he says to me, he says, okay, done. I'm going to turn you on to uh, one of the big um, agencies, agents. You can get an agent that, you know, represents you in, in what you're trying to do. Okay, great. So he turns me on, Carol, to the top agency um, in in Hollywood. Wow. So I go. And I'm meeting with them. And it was, you know, it was a reality check because they talk with me. And this is what they said. They were very direct. Uh, you know, I, I'll never I'll never forget what they said. <laughs> this is what they said, Carol. They said, OK, done. You came here on the strong, um, you know, referral. And we can't turn you down because we can't afford to lose the Warner Brothers Pictures account. So if you want us to represent you, we're going to represent you. We have no choice, really. That's basically what they said. They said, well, we got to give you a little reality here. And um, and I, here we go again. I told the story the other night. I said, so I'm going to um, use the name Steven Spielberg, but the story does not, that is not the name that they use because I don't want to divulge the name. Gotcha. So, but I'm just giving Steven Spielberg just to give you the stature of the name of the person, okay. of someone of that stature. It was a, a, a super big, 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 big wig. Big. <laughs> right. So that's what they said. So I'm going to use Steven Spielberg again. I'm going to make it be cautionary, but not talking about him, just using him as a name, just so you can. As get a placeholder. Gotcha. Placeholder. Thank you. Okay. So. They said, you know, done. Steven Spielberg, he um, he has um, he does big films, and he has the right to choose any person to do his music score that he would like to. He deserves the best, and he's going to want the best because he's got a hundred, two hundred million dollars up in the budget to do this film, blah blah blah. And they said, quite frankly, he's going to feel inferior to have to talk to you about his music and his film. And the fact of it is that you would probably know more about that part than he does. It just, they just simply would not be comfortable with you, with the shade of you that you are. Wow. Period. Period. So said it to me point blank. Said it's going to be difficult. So it's not impossible, but it would be difficult. So I said, um, so in my mind, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't totally shocked by that. I was, no. you know, I was prepared. Mm -hmm. So I asked them, I said, well, do you have a piano um, here? And they said, yeah, I've got a piano. I said, would you mind stepping in by the piano? I said, great. And, uh, and so I sat down at the piano. Here we go. I started to play a classical um, Beethoven and Bach sonata. And I'm playing the box or not and whatnot. And I'm like, I finished. They looked at me and they said, oh. So I could see it on their face. They was like, oh, okay, so we got a black gentleman that you know, has to play the classical. Because in essence, I'm trying to give them the definition in my own mind of what the best is. Mm -hmm. All right. But I don't respond. I simply turn back around and I start to play the same box sonata. The difference is this time when I'm playing it, I'm singing. The smiling in your face all the time. They want to take your nice. place. Stab us. That's nice. Stab, stab us. It was the same exact 
music. Mm. It was presented in a different form. Now they're looking at me with total amazement. They said, oh, my God, you're a genius. You need to go and do a college tour and do what you just did here in front of us, in front of all of the universities around the country, and do a whole study of what you just presented here to us. And then you'll be able to get what you're looking for. They didn't say that part. I'm just paraphrasing what they said. Right, right, right. But a young boy from Cleveland? (laughs) (laughs) My response to that was, Man, I'm not Martin Luther King. (laughs) (laughs) Why I got to go through all of that, man? Okay. I just want to score the movies, man. Right, right. (laughs) I'm not going out there and we shall overcome it all. I am not. Why? (laughs) (laughs) All I want you to do is. Give me an opportunity. Let me do that in front of Steven Spielberg or one of them and let them hire me. Let's move right. on to the next right. thing. Right. Okay. Well, that didn't happen. Did none of that happen. Yeah. Uh, they didn't sign. I chose not to sign with them because it was like, that's a waste of time. Right. And uh, and I certainly did not go out there and, and do the college thing, the Martin Luther King thing. I did not do that. Right. Um, in hindsight, of course, Carol, that was a that was a mistake. <laughs> uh, I should have done one of the two things. I either should have forced them to sign me and then went on and, and forced myself in, or I should have gone out and actually did what I'd done. Yeah. But what I did do, and that's how the Black Beethoven was born. I I throughout my career, in all of the credits that I've done, I've always sprinkled in an example of that. Because the concept of the Black Beethoven is to say, with all due respect, that James Brown or Michael Jackson or any of them were equally as talented as any of those legendary composers that you're talking about, Beethoven, Bach, Ravel, all of them. Correct. There's a difference in that. It's just a difference in time and a difference in presentation. Mm -hmm. What Mr. Spielberg was looking for, of course, was was some white kid sitting in the room at Harvard or Yale or one of the music conservatories of Juilliard, you know, with bifocal glasses on and he's playing all of this. That's the stereotype. That was his definition of the best. Yeah. And for the listening audience, he's really not, again, for the listening audience, he's not talking about Steven Spielberg. For We'll just say Mr. Corporate Bigwig. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Mr. Corporate Bigwig, right. Um, You know, the point of it is, is that, you know, your definition of the best. Right. Deserve the best. I never will argue with that. Absolutely, you deserve the best. But your definition of the best needs to be clearly defined or just changed. Or broadened. A broaden. broaden. Absolutely broaden. Absolutely broaden. That is how the Black Beethoven was born. That's the story. That's how it, that's how it, that's how it created they created the black Beethoven right from there. And, 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 and Carol, you know, the, the funny part about it, because I got a YouTube channel, you know, all that. Yeah. And most of the people, most of the people are stuck on 
the word black in front of Beethoven. So right. most of the comments, they never even get to the music that I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Right. And the debate about whether black Be- Beethoven so was actually, was actually a black, black person. person. Right. You know? Actually a black right. person. Right. You know. <laughs> and I, you know, and I purposely, I never respond to that. Yeah. I just, you know, I just let it roll. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Just, anyway, we'll move on. Yeah. That, that's the story. That sounded like Beethoven. <laughs> Once again, a great story. So what words of wisdom do you have for youth who are interested in a career in music? And what words of wisdom do you have for parents who have a child who's interested in a career in the music industry? So let me start with the with the kid, the, the person who's actually um, playing the music. Uh, I would say to them, listen to the music that you like. Take that in your heart and your soul and know that you too can become whatever that song is. You too can be, you can make it there. You can do that. If you can feel the energy or the soul, as I call it, of the music that you're playing and you're listening to, whatever it is that you're doing, it doesn't have to be music. If you're playing, you're dancing, whatever it is, you get that entertainment soul into you, you can make it. You can actually do it. It is possible. I stand here to tell you that as a career, you can have a career in the entertainment business. It is possible. It's like any other job. I know we've, the reputation has always been that, you know, you're crazy for being in the entertainment business and all that. I've heard that stereotype, but that is not true if you are totally committed, but you must be committed. Do not play it as, as I say, I always make fun. Don't just get in it to get the girls because, you you know, that's a limited thing. But if you want to have a real career, you have to be committed yes. to the parents. To the parents, I say, you must be realistic. It is your job as a parent to be realistic. You may have hopes and dreams. There may be glimpses of of reality there. But if it's not there, you must identify it or you must put more resources to develop it. Do not think that you can go past any of the steps. That's a huge mistake. Find out that the steps you must make from beginning to get to the journey. You would be prepared if you were traveling from one destination to the other, you would get a GPS. That GPS would lead you to where it's going. You, As a parent, it is your responsibility to find the GPS in the career of what your child is attempting to do. And you must then stay on that path of the GPS to get your kid from one destination to the other. Those are my words of wisdom. Excellent, excellent, excellent advice. Excellent advice. So now, what was your number one challenge in the business and the ground rules that you established for yourself? Because this is also in your book. Okay. Well, the the, the thing of it was, was that um, back then I wanted to be judged by the content of my talent and not the character of my stature, if you will. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means is that I didn't want any job, Carol, that was just because I was done piercing. You know, I wanted the job because the merit of my talent is the right word. Right. The merit of my talent said I was qualified for the job. That was very important to me. That's why I told you in high school, I never told the uh, music teacher that I could play the piano because yeah. I wanted to be judged on, you know, when I played the trombone, that's what I'm there for. So it that never left me. I believed that and I carried <laughs> that. 
So my biggest challenge is of, as you say, that every action causes a reaction. The biggest challenge was is because people did not know who I was. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so the challenge of it, and it even stands to this day, you know, that many people do not know who I am. So that that causes me to have to now explain who I am, you know. So in other words, some of the barriers. So let's just talk about it from a from a pure social side of it, or even financial side of it. Yeah, that had a big uh, effect on the financial capabilities because, of course. You know, you got to have a name to draw people. I mean, it's right. very, you know, it's, it's a common thing. But what I did, I went behind the scenes and I did these other things that you talked about, movies and, and Broadway and all of these other other things so that I could make the financial makeup so that I could stand by my basic principle. Every job that I've gotten in my in my heart has been based upon the merit of my talent. Yes. And not the basis of my stature. Gotcha. So that's pretty much how it was. But, you know, like I said, it comes with a lot of ups and downs, um, Carol. Yeah. You know, those, those are those are those are some strong words, but it's also very <laughs> difficult to yeah. uh, execute that and stay and stay and stay and stay afloat. Yeah. But, so now <clears throat> you've done a lot of community stuff and community engagement work. So. If you can just talk a little bit about your work with the Virginia African American Cultural Center, men, women, and domestic violence, men for men, better living campaign, and the horse to human trauma training. I know that's a lot. <laughs> it is just touch okay, base but it, a little bit. Yeah, but it's but it all but it all can be wrapped up in, into one thing. I'm big on supporting people, uh, organizations that issues, if you will. Mm-hmm that can make a difference, that can actually change. And, and all those that you just articulated are close to my heart. This goes back to the same um, Black Beethoven um, scenario. There's been a, I don't, I don't run away from racism and the, and the race issue in, right. in society. I do not, I run to it and I try to attack it and I try to speak to it. That is the caveat of being in the entertainment business. You know, I can sort of present it in a, with a smile. Yeah. I can sort of break through music as a way of of, of making a connection. You know what I'm saying? So yes. if I have to reach somebody on a different level, I can play the piano and play a song that they can connect with. And now we got a connection. So now at least now we can talk about the issues. Right. So I, I'm always involved in organizations. All of them that you said, they all are geared to make a difference. The African American uh, Virginia uh, thing—they are doing a wonderful thing. They're building a, a museum and they're trying to get a whole art center together. They are doing. I'm sorry, they broke they broke ground and all this and the other, similar to the one that's in Washington D.C. So they're going to mirror that same kind of thing where you document the history of what we've been doing. And so where will this the, museum be at again? That one is in um, in Virginia. Uh, Yes, in Virginia. Okay. Um, the Men for Men, that's that that's a show that basically speaks to men issues, which of course I'm I'm big on as you put my book up there. Yeah. So all everything, everything is all community based on knowledge that I've shared and showing to how you can move and to reach other people and try to uplift them, give them some of the knowledge. I'm a big guy on 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 giving the knowledge back. That is one thing that we must do. I stress that all the time. Got to got to pass the knowledge on. Now you've had some really great historical commercial firsts with McDonald's, Wendy's, and Kellogg's. Tell us about that. 
Okay, same same scenario. So um with um with the I was doing a Broadway show. Um and um the producers of that, they also had the McDonald's account. I go to the session and the first thing I look in the room and there's a gentleman named Luther Vandross is standing in the room. So I'm thinking to myself, well, oh, well, wait a minute. Then I see that the client for McDonald's is also a person that looks like me and Luther. Eventually, I get the account at McDonald's myself. And at the time, this was in changing times because the hip hop stuff was just coming in at that same time. Okay. So I got the opportunity to blend in some of the new music that was coming with some of the more conventional music that you might imagine. I was able to produce one of the first hip hop commercials from for McDonald's. Okay. Yeah, for McDonald's, right? Um, at the end of the day, um, they turned one month. They just woke up and said, "You know what? McDonald's is not ready for that," and they just squashed the whole campaign. Oh, wow. They just threw all, they threw all the money away. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is, a couple five, six, ten million dollars didn't matter. Just throw that away. We, we're not going to use any of that. But sooner or later, of course, hip hop was here to stay. And so finally they came back around and I was fortunate enough to be one of the first to actually put out a, a commercial for them, um, hip hop. Excellent. Moving right along to Wendy's, I'll keep them very short, same kind of thing. So Wendy's um, wanted to do a Super Bowl commercial. So you know how big Super Bowl commercials are? Everybody in the world. Yeah, everybody's right. So they got this commercial. And their idea was to, they were introducing chicken nuggets. So Wendy's was going to to debut and did debut chicken nuggets to the world on a Super Bowl commercial. And it was a Super Bowl. I forget what night 21. So whatever it was, the one with the New York Giants where they beat the New England Patriots. For any of y'all that are paying attention. All right. So, <laughs> so we did a rendition of a Cool in the Gang song of Celebrate. Celebrate the times. Come on. Da, da, da. Da, 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 da. Okay, so we change the lyric. Crispy nuggets, y'all, come on. Da, da. <laughs> yeah, you, get, you get the idea. Right, change, the, right. change the words up, get rolling. All right, so we're in the studio, and we're recording. And the heads of, of the uh, people from Wendy's, they're in the room, and, the, you know, the, the uh, jingle, the uh, big wigs, all the big wigs, that's a good word you use, all the big wigs are there. <laughs> Well, I'm sitting out in the lobby talking with my engineer, whatever, you know, and uh, <laughs> the big wig that hired me comes out and he says, Dunn, um, can I talk with you a minute? Of course, sir. He says, um, we got a, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? The problem was, was that the people from Wendy's didn't know that cool and the gang were black. Oh my goodness gracious. They didn't know they were black. Oh my gosh. So my, my first inclination, of course, I, and after after I got finished laughing, I said, right, so right. I said, well, I said, well, what's the problem? Well, right. You know, okay, I'm black. I mean, I get it, but but what's the what's what's right. that? What's the problem? What's right. that got to do with anything? He says, well, here's the deal. There's never been in the history of of advertising a black person or entity to introduce a new product to the nation or to the world. Wow. Because obviously the demographics of the nation is white. See? So if you're coming out with a new product, you wouldn't come out with, with the minority, come out to the, and especially on the Super Bowl. Right. So we're not really trying to talk to uh, 
people of color, i.e. black people, we really want to focus and sell our message to predominantly white mainstream. audience. Main, yeah, to Main Street. Get to Main Street. Okay, so, uh, so that makes sense. Oh, of course I can understand that. Right, okay. Right. Okay. All right. So this is what I said. I said, well, I tell you what, why don't you go back in there and tell them, let's take another million dollars and let's promote the fact that Wendy's is the first to ever do it. I said, so put that part of the campaign, blow it all up. Wendy's not only is introducing chicken nuggets, but you're also breaking barriers. I said, get, and he went back in and he told them, and they, what did they say? That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great story. Oh my gosh. That's a great idea. <laughs> and, Jeez Louise. And the rest, and the, and the rest is history. history. And then, the, the rest, rest is history. So, yes. Oh my God. So I tell, I tell people, so anytime you anytime you had Wendy's folks that's listening and you have a and you have a crispy nugget, a chicken nugget from there, Dunn Pearson brought it to you first. <laughs> right, right. Dunn Pearson <laughs> brought you that crispy chicken nugget. Okay. And they're delicious. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty good. Oh my goodness. So now this next question, when I was researching for this interview, this completely caught me off guard because these are two of my favorite cartoons. So now please tell me your involvement with the iconic cartoons, the Jetsons and the Flintstones. What is up? How did that happen? Yeah. So you saw my reel, right? Okay. So, so yeah. all, right. all right. So what happened was, was that of course I would, I would tell everybody right off the bat. I was too young to be a part of the original Flintstones, okay? Right. I, I did not write the bedrock Flintstone. No, right, right. I, did not, I did not do that. Okay. But what I did do was when uh, Peter Pan Agency, which is another company, they licensed both the Flintstones and the Jetsons. And so in the new, you know, like, you know, like, like you say, I make it like, like say when it used to be in black and white, you make it color, right. you know, so the new rendition, the new packaging of the the Flintstones and the Jetson and right. all of that. I then was able to take the that music off and insert my own ah. tune. Right. So in both in both of those cases, and of course, I was like a little kid. I watched the Flintstones and the Jetsons like everybody else. It was a fun project. It hit me musically. I was able to recreate all of that music. I had a ball. Wow. It was like. A childhood dream. Wow. It was really as simple as that. Yeah. That <laughs> that's is my... amazing, Don. And amazing. amazing. Yeah, truly so now we're going to get to your book. In 2017, you published Masculine Vulnerabilities, The Power and Inner Man Revealed. What do you want readers to take away from your story? And I just want to say, what a great read. What a really, really great read. I didn't know the movie Unhinged that you work on with Kevin Taylor was pretty much, you know, autobiographical. But this is a great read. I read it in two days. Oh, thank you, Carol. Well, yeah, I, appreciate, I appreciate those kind words. And I really okay. encourage the, uh, our listeners to go and to order this book. Oh, I, uh, yeah. Well, thank you about that. Yeah, yeah. Go get that book. Okay. <laughs> um, Masculine Vulnerabilities. When I was first approached by the publisher to to do that, to do this book, I'm thinking that they want to do basically like what we're doing now, you know, fluff interview, talk about all, you know, things I just talked about and keep it moving. That's what I thought. Right. And um, I was told, no, Don, um, we see you as um, as a man. We want to go beyond the accolades. We want to go behind what, how did that make that happen? 
We want to come up with something called masculine vulnerability. So when I heard those two words, I'm thinking, what in the world? So the first thing, <laughs> first thing I had to do was go to the dictionary and see, <laughs> and see exactly what vulnerabilities mean. You know? <laughs> let, me, let me digest what that is first. And so when I finally understood what masculine vulnerabilities is, it really just says, how are you feeling in all of these wonderful scenarios? So, it, so, just, so just take, for instance, this interview. Um, to be an example, I know you read the book. Basically, I would say, um, I would talk about how I'm actually feeling talking to Carol. I'm talking about all my stories, but what's going on inside my heart? Where are my vulnerabilities about the situation? And in in most cases for men, we have a lot of vulnerabilities. You know, what we're saying coming out of our mouth may have a lot of bravado and all of that wonderful stuff and machoism and uh, all of that. Behind behind those words, what is the inner man thinking? Mm-hmm. And so basically, my book is filled with scenarios by all of these that I'm talking about here. And I actually give an illustration of what's actually going on in my mind of how men actually think. Yes. What is really going on in a man's and I so I hope that the readers, when you read it, whether you're a woman, female, or male, that you can sort of associate that in your own relationship. Yeah. Hopefully, maybe one person will get something. You know what? You know what? That's what my man was really trying to say when he was, you know, yeah. get an interpretation of what he was saying. And, and like you said, it's something in my book. A lot of the, a lot of those are really funny kind of scenarios because you know, but it's real in the sense of what was actually where our vulnerabilities are. What's yeah. really going on in a man's mind, and so that's the that's the in essence the the overall. Well, it, it's well it's well written done. I'm very oh, proud I really of you. Appreciate that, I really Carol. Am Thank well you. you know, for my first for my first effort at writing a book, you know, <laughs> I, I tell everybody, so you didn't have to go no further than that. I was vulnerable in even trying to pick up a pen to write something. <laughs> <laughs> Me? I'm going to write some me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's, a, it's a great read. It really, uh, really is. It's a great read. Okay, now, sure. listen, let's, what is Afrofuturism, which you're seeing that a lot, and what is your latest creation in that genre? Okay, so Afrofuturism, of course, is something that's uh, coming out current this way, and it's really going back to the roots of what music is about what, on an overall, our, our totality of what... Um, African, our culture, where we come from into today's culture, it's a study of it, really is what it is. It's a study. And it not only goes in music, it goes from all things to other things, arts and, yes. you know, any any business that you're in, um, you know, any building, Yeah, because they did Afrofuturism with the, a Greater Cleveland Urban Film Festival here last year, too. Uh-huh. That's, that is correct. Okay. So um, what I take from it is that, um, you know, I go back to the history. So um, in a performance I did uh, on Afrofuturism with, with the um, Virginia Virginia Beach um, scenario, um, I went back to the history of it and I played um, two selections that was just simply on the black keys on the piano only. So I gave the relationship of what that actually meant to the history of music. Okay, and the black keys on the piano. There were many songs that were that our fellow slaves or early descendants used to sing out in the fields, and they were all black key notes. And I don't know whether that was by design or whatever it was, but many of those go down, Moses. 
let my people go, you know, all of those kind of things. They were, there was all, they were all done on black keys, you know, I mean, not, you know, playing, I'm just saying that the melodies, yeah. that, that, that culture of music and that music separated us and it made our identity in, in music as time went on because that particular style that particular sound of the black keys is is really related into our culture. James Brown took it to a different level. Though, and of course, he, he if he was here to say it, of course, he would say that was not intentional. It yeah. just happened that way. Yeah. But James Brown would just simply stay on one. No. The downbeat. The downbeat. He would stay on that one note. Well, that one note of the of the musicality that touched all of us. Yeah. That's what made us move to say it loud and I'm black like and, and I'm, I'm proud. proud. See? So all of those, all of those things that fit into the culture of how we moved from those days into these times. So that's what Afrofuturism is, how I use it to be an example of history. Awesome. That is awesome. Now, you created the God Has a Blessing Foundation. Tell mm. us about the foundation and your positive Sunday messages, of which I uh, am one of the lucky people to get those Sunday messages, and I love them. Tell us about it. Okay, so the the, the basic uh, thing that I created it on was a simple way to um, to stay in touch with, with people. I was my way of um, looking at social media, you know, and just being able to connect with people, you know, and then we were all moving fast. I said, you know what? Let me just put together a 30 second uh, blessing, something that's very short, doesn't, in, doesn't, in, you know, take away from anything. You have to sit on it long and it can be personal. So the concept is, and you know, Carol, it's, it's I text people yes, literally. You do. And it's, Private conversations, not no group text. I don't like any of that. Me so neither. the spirit <laughs> of it was that. So I'll just talk about you, Carol. So the whole thing of it is, is of course, so it gives us an opportunity to communicate. And it's, the, I, you know, so if, if I don't hear nothing from you, but hey, hey, hey good. You know, or you <laughs> give me a spot, anything. Yeah. But we're, what we're doing, we're just connecting. Right. Which, and I felt like, I felt like if, if I could connect with a blessing with someone, what better thing? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's kind of funny because it's the exact opposite of what I'm doing. I'm talking a lot, but <laughs> oh my God, that's a blessing. You know, that little smiley face. We're just really saying, Hey, I'm good. Yeah. And I, I respond. That's all basically what yeah. that's all it's really saying. Yeah. Hey, Carol, how are you? Yeah. And you're saying back to me. Yeah. In the same time, I give you the word of God. So it brings it back. So I choose a word and then I talk about the actual, you know, some, it can give some examples of what the word means. And then I give you the word of God. So it just gives you a quick 30 second blessing. Okay. Carol, I had no idea the magnitude of what that was going to mean. So I'll tell, tell, I tell this story to encapsulate the whole thing. One day I'm sitting here and I get a phone call and a guy says, Dunn, can you have a meeting? I go meet with a gentleman who's going to run for governor of the great state of Connecticut. He's going for governor. And this is what he says to me. He says, Dunn, I somehow got this blessing that you sent. 
And one of the blessings I talked about God making a choice. Which one would God choose? Health care for all or fiscal health care? Meaning very simply, would you prefer, would God choose to cover everybody in America or in the world for that matter under health care? Or would he choose to do something that would be fiscally sound, something that would be financially reasonable, which was the debate going on at this particular time? This governor to be said to me, Dunn, I want you to be my campaign manager for the great state of Connecticut. Wow. Carol? From that moment, when those words rang out, I no longer cared what he said after any of that. (laughs) I didn't care whether the man was going to win or lose. (laughs) One thing I heard was that you saying Dunn Pierce (laughs) is going to be a campaign Campaign manager (laughs) for somebody running for governor of the great state. (laughs) And I'm thinking, girl, you know, guy from Cleveland. I'm thinking, man, I ain't got a, I ain't got a dog catcher elected to nothing. I know, well, if I'm gonna get you elected, you know, I'm thinking this. You talk about masculine vulnerabilities. This is at its, this is at masculine vulnerabilities on steroids. Right. I'm thinking, oh man, you you gotta be kidding. But he was 100 percent serious. And eventually I understood that, okay, this is a huge issue. It And it was a huge issue. Okay. So I'm not going to tell you what happened and who it was and all of that. We'll figure that out at another time. Right. But how God has a blessing was, was done. And, and my whole thing about it, going back to a more personal note about God has a blessing, the God has a blessing foundation. We believe in passing a blessing along one blessing at a time. Mm. So we can help somebody one time at every single time we have done our job. That is my mission on the, on the bigger picture to, to give a word of encouragement to someone, any kind of way that my blessing can affect someone. I believe that that's what the God has led me to do in all of this. I take that to my heart. Amen. <laughs> Well, I just want to say I want to thank you personally because I enjoy getting them every Sunday. They're right on time. Oh, right on time, Done. Thank you so much for that. Now, um, this September, you're going to perform at the 2023 Orlando Urban Film Festival's 10th anniversary celebration. Tell us about the festival and the special musical score that you're going to perform. Because that, that Orlando Film Festival is a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah, and I one of the people connected, and you know, if you talk about her a little bit, is a sister from Cleveland. Marianne Eggleston yes. from Cleveland. She's the founder. Yeah. Her mission of, of creating this urban film festival is so that those people that was, I call it, standing in the dark can be shown in the light, which means that filmmakers, create content creators, that don't get a chance to be at all the big film festivals, or more importantly, just keep it simple, to see their film in a movie theater, yeah. which is the 
I talk about it all the time. You know, you know, <laughs> I always tell people I'm a simple kind of guy. Uh, I talk about um, just getting some popcorn at the concession stand. <laughs> Extra butter, in, please. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and sit down and actually see a movie that you created on the screen, yeah. like any other movie. It's a great thrill. So that was her, that is her mission. And this is her 10th year. Wow. I'm blessed and honored to be a part of it um, because this, of course, is a big anniversary year. It's a big celebration. It's a big deal, as, yes. you, as you just said. So, they're planning, they're pulling out all the stops, you know, it's going to be, you know, everything that you can do. But, but more importantly, for all of the filmmakers, I think this year we had close to maybe like 150, there's a record amount of submissions, 152, wow. a lot of films. Excellent. And um, and so many of those that have been selected to actually get that, that opportunity to buy the popcorn and all that, see the film on the screen is a wonderful, wonderful experience for them and their families and everybody that believes in them. They can actually come and sit down. I urge anyone that you have any love for films or anything in that area and you in Orlando, please come. Um, the, um, it's at the DMX theaters, downtown Orlando for the film park that I just described. And on Saturday at the Dr. Phillips performing arts center in Orlando is where we're having the awards celebration. So it's like coming to the Oscars on Saturday afternoon at four o'clock. Um, and so they'll be awarding all the people and I get to share a little part in there because mm-hmm. I get a chance to be the performer. Awesome. So you're going to see me, you're going to see the Black Beethoven on stage with a big piano, and I'm going to play some music just like the old days that I described earlier in this interview. I'm going to show the history of um, urban films on the screen, and, and I'm going to play as if we were back in the early days of just having the piano player playing the music. Oh, that's going to be great. As the films are rolling up there on the screen and so forth and so on, I'm going to, you know, I'm obviously going to use some of the technology, move it up a little bit. Yeah. But at the same point, but the concept of it is, is that's what it is. I plan to do that and uh, bring it all together and have a wonderful, wonderful time. Again, it's the Orlando Urban Film Festival. Uh, please go to Orlando uh, uh, UFF, which stands for the names.com for tickets and all of that wonderful stuff, all the information that you need. Again, it's the Orlando Urban Film Festival in Orlando, Florida. Awesome. That is excellent. Excellent. Now, when you have time to relax and have some fun, what are some of your hobbies? Well, golf. <laughs> in a word, <laughs> to sum it all up. Golf, 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 hands down, you know, uh, golf, you know, it's really interesting too. you know, golf is a, is a relaxing um, uh, sport yeah. to, to a degree, other than the fact that you go crazy trying to beat the game, you try to beat yourself, you know, that's, that, that's the part, but yeah. um, I never, I never understood the power of, of golf, um, Carol, I'll, here go, very quick story. I was with the OJs sitting in a restaurant, gambling huff. Uh, wife is named uh, Gamble's wife is named Dee Dee Sharp Gamble. I mean, that's his first wife. He got a new wife now. But okay, anyway, Dee Dee Sharp. She too had a big record called Mashed Potatoes back in the day. She's a big star. Okay. All right. So she carried a psychic with her. Wow. So you can imagine me. I'm thinking of a psychic. Okay. But anyway, psychic calls me done. Back in those days, my name was Donnie, as you know. Yeah. 
Donnie, Donnie. Oh, oh. And they came up to me, and this is what they said. They said, you should play golf. First thing come out of my mouth. Have you, you don't see no black folks playing no golf. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, that's a sissy game. You ain't hitting the ball, you know, whatever. I said, no, no, no. It's what the, she told me, it's what, it's not the game. It's something she said, it's what the game will do for you. And I, of course, didn't understand it and I blew it off. Well, yeah. you fast forward 15, 20 years later, of course, all those words that they said to me were very true. Yeah. Uh, the game, the game gives you a competition. It relaxes my mind. It does everything that that um, that they said to me back then. Yeah. I just sort of blew it off. But golf is golf gives me that opportunity to be out. You be outdoors. That's the first thing. You're outdoors. You're smelling all of the you know the the the, the life of the life of God. I call it yeah. uh, out in the open, and um, and it it just it just takes you to a different level. For golfers, every golfer certainly understands what what I mean when I say golf. But that's basically that's my number one uh, hobby, uh, Carol. Yeah, well, you know, my daughter just started. A, a friend of mine gave me a, a like a all new golf bag and everything, and so my daughter just started taking golf lessons. Oh, she just yeah. started well, that. Hey, listen, she's gonna be bit by the bug in a minute. I know. Yeah, <laughs> she, like, well, oh, love yeah she's very. Can you do something else? Can you do something else? <laughs> yeah, she's very. She's very. Um, She's very um, sports-oriented and loves oh. to play. Oh, there you go. Let's you know. So, now, listen, so how can people contact you regarding your music, your music, commercial and entertainment business, community engagement activities, purchase your book, and book you for speaking engagements? Well, uh, of course, there's many sources to reach me, but the simplest one is by name, Dunn Pearson. So you can go to dunpearson.com. You can go to dunpearson at Gmail to email me. Everything is is Dunn Pearson. So you can reach me from there. And then, of course, um, anything else that you want to branch out, all these things that we talked about, you will certainly um, be able to be a part of that as well. Like the Black Beethoven is a blackbeethoven.com, all those things. But I recommend just simply start at my name, D-U-N-N-P-E-A-R-S-O-N.com, dunpearson.com. That is so true. (laughs) And everything comes up. Every, everything, everything will come up from there, and you certainly can Google me and all, all the stuff that you know that, that the I call it the young folks do. Right, take, right. So the Googler. Know, <laughs> you know, Carol. You know, a, a little piece of the celebrity thing. You know, it is kind of funny because I'll be talking to some people interviewing. Next thing you know, oh yeah, I'm looking at your name right now. You know, I'll be like, oh my god. You know, <laughs> if, if I'm talking, I, I was in a bar uh, at a restaurant, whatever. I'm sitting at the bar. And some the ladies were talking to me. And next thing I know, they they, they didn't Google me. (laughs) And immediately the conversation changed. Oh no! Wait a minute. Look, look, I'll give I'll give you I'll give you a little preview. So I had them take a picture. I said I said on my opening and and coming up in Orlando. I said when they now announced me and say Dunn Pearson. I said the first thing you come on the screen. I, was, I had people gonna say, Do you know who Dunn Pearson is? And I got these I got these two ladies talking. About, no, we don't know who he is. No, we don't know. Who he is. <laughs> the same thing in the question. My bio is gonna write, and then yeah. I'm gonna go for. But it's a it's a it's a it's a fun thing. But this is what happens, you know. Dunn Pearson. Dunpearson.com, Dunpearson at Gmail. You get to me. And I'd be more than welcome to to help anybody and supply 
supply all the tools. I run an advertising agency. Let me get all that into it as well. My advertising agency is called All Done Advertising. That's A-L-L, all, and then done, D-U-N-N, advertising. So it's alldoneadvertising.com. I handle all of your needs, all your marketing needs. I put people on television. I make you famous, as I say (laughs) that. And I build brands. I I build trust in your brands. I have a lot of clients that that's what I do. And I'd be more than happy to do that for you. So please keep me in mind, alldoneadvertising.com. And thank you, Carol, for giving me that opportunity to put these things in the world, put these things in the market. It's my pleasure. But before we go, before you before you close out, I got to tell you one thing about the Broadway, uh, because this is always the most important thing that I'm going to say in any of my interviews. Inspiration to everyone. Please take note of this last story done. I was able to to um, do the orchestrations. A Broadway show called Amen Corner, which yes. was written by the legendary James Baldwin. I tell the story. This is my most finest and most proudest moment that I've ever experienced. And it's this. I was so proud that my I was able to fly my grandparents from Cleveland to New York City, get them in a limousine from the airport. They came to a Broadway theater. They walked into the Broadway theater and the lady handed them a Broadway playbill that had their grandson's name in it. That's wonderful. There is no more outer or more moment. Please, if your dreams and anything that anybody that you're doing in any business, always remember that the, the pride of it is it's going to be those that you love that can participate because believe me, it was never me. It was always we did something. Well, Thank you so much, Carol. Well said. I'm all choked up, Dunn. Well, well, well said. I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. Dunn Pearson, Jr., for visiting with us today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation and I've enjoyed it immensely, immensely. I would like to leave our audience with a quote from my guest today. And I picked the perfect quote done. First, I give praise to God. I know no words to thank everyone that has made me, we. There is not a resume that does not include my mama and family. I am grateful and humbled by the blessing of an entertainment lifetime. I would like to thank our audience for stopping by today. We appreciate your support. Please join us again as we continue our conversation with Clevelanders, Cleveland's own Dunn Pearson, who are making positive contributions to their neighborhoods and our community. Visit Neighborhood Connections' website to see all of our community engagement activities and opportunities. If you have a great idea and you want to do something positive for your community, contact Neighborhood Connections at 216-361-0042 or send us an email at www.neighborhoodgrants.org and like us on Facebook. Stay informed, stay involved, stay connected. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining me today on Neighbor Up Spotlight. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Equity and the Arts Fund in association with Bad Rap Recording Studio. Executive producer, creator, 
Writer, host, Carol Malone. Co-producer, Lila Mills. Engineer, James Cannon. Photography, social media, Vince Robinson. Graphic artist, Kadrian Hinton. We're just a homemade, handmade podcast from scratch. Please share our positive stories with your neighbors, friends, family, and on your social media. Thank you for listening, and neighbor up.